There's no question a lot is at stake in this year's election at all levels of government. We here at the Topeka Capital Journal are doing our part to share the perspectives of those running for elected positions in Kansas. My name is India Yarbrough, and I'm a reporter for the Capital Journal. Over the next few weeks, leading up to the November 3rd general election, our reporters will be interviewing candidates running for local, state, and national offices. We'll be asking them questions about their platforms and priorities, and having conversations about what this year's election means to Kansans. We hope you enjoy listening to our Election 2020 podcast series. This is the Topeka Capital Journal's 2020 election podcast, where we bring candidates in to talk with us, uh, representing the Topeka area on the local level, state level, as well as the congressional level. Uh, my name is Titus. I'm the state government reporter with the Topeka Capital Journal. And today we have here with me Tobias Schlingenzippen, um, who is running for Kansas Senate District 18. Uh, he's a Democrat against... Her, his Republican opponent, Kristen O'Shea. Tobias, it's good to have you here with me. It's good to be here. Thank you. Awesome. So, um, you know, just kind of, you know, to just start off, you know, you know, when many, when many common folks, they look at, you know, these politicians, whether they're running for the state house or congressional, they think of like kind of maybe shady figures who are corrupt, who are, you know, just kind of far away, removed from their community. But, you know, so I wanted to ask you, you know, who are you? You know, as as a Topekan, as as a Kansan, who 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 are you? Well, um, my name's Tobias Schlingenzippen. You got that right. <laughs> uh, I congratulate you on that. And uh, I grew up here in Topeka. I attended everything from nursery school through uh, one semester at Washburn University uh, here in Topeka before I went on to KU. Uh, and uh, I have raised my children here in Topeka. I still live in the same neighborhood I lived in growing up, uh, in the College Hill neighborhood uh, in central Topeka. Uh, I'm living, I think, uh, now in the fifth house I've lived in in College Hill, in fact, in the course of my life. Um, uh, My wife and I have raised eight kids between us uh, in this town. Uh, Our children have also gone to uh, Topeka Public Schools and have graduated from Topeka Public Schools. Uh, I'm the pastor of the First Congregational Church. Uh, That's the church I grew up in. Uh, And after I returned from going to seminary in Germany, I came back to Topeka with my family and and began working here at Seabrook United Church of Christ and uh, and then as an assistant at First Congregational Church. And since 2005, I have been the senior minister of the combined uh, congregations of Seabrook and First Congregational Church. They are now one church, First Congregational Church, and uh, I've been serving there since. So I'm serving in the church I grew up in. so I've always loved this city, and I've always been very loyal to it, and I've been very active in it uh, since I've been uh, back here, uh, a little over 20 years now. Um, I've been involved in the community in lots of different ways, and uh, and so uh, seeking to, to serve people in the 18th Senate District is, is no stretch for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, you know, just, I guess, why did you you know, decide to run for office? Why did you say, you know, let me get into state politics, you know? Well, you may know that uh, I ran for Congress back in 2012, but I really got involved in uh, in state politics back in 2010 when Governor Brownback wanted to close the Kansas Neurological Institute. And uh, together with then-Senators 
Laura Kelly and Vicki Schmidt and Roger Wrights and Ann Ma and others, in other words, from both parties, uh, we managed to uh, see to it that KNI, Kansas Neurological Institute, continues to exist and to provide care uh, for its residents to this day. Uh, that was a wake-up call to me. Uh, we need to care for the most vulnerable in our society. That's very important. Uh, and, 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 and that takes community involvement. You can't just sit back and expect that everything's going to go all right. So that's where I got involved. That's where I got to meet people in politics. And I found out it's not true that politicians are all corrupt and shady. Uh, you know, when, 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 when times are difficult, they step up to the plate and they do the things that need to be done. Uh, not everybody's always happy about, about uh, the solutions uh, that they come up with, but uh, compromise is very, very important when you're working in politics and you have to find ways to work with each other. And so that's really what I'm committed to. I've, I've professionally, as a pastor, as a human being, uh, my motto is really bring people together, sit around the table, and talk through your differences. So that's that's okay. it in a nutshell. Okay, you know, in terms of talking about compromise and, and issues, you know, some of the issues that you know we're going to talk about are very divisive, and you know, for some people, it's hard to even fathom the, the idea of compromising on you know certain values or or stuff. Um, you know, one of them is, is abortion. Uh, it's always been like a, you know, a hot topic issue in Kansas. Um, I, I guess, w- what can you promise voters on what you will do regarding this issue? Well, first of all, I think we have to acknowledge that um, that, uh, that this is a difficult decision in any woman's life who is confronted uh, with a pregnancy she doesn't know whether she can handle or not. And I think that um, what matters here is that regardless of the oppositional views, uh, the question really is, how do we help a young mother uh, to feel confident about the life that's forming within her? And the way to do that is to provide supports to her. So the current debate simply revolves around whether abortion should be made illegal or whether it should continue to be legal. Uh, That doesn't really address the underlying uh, problems at all uh, that women confront. So uh, if I'm a a young girl, for example, who's confronted with a pregnancy and and I come from a home in which I haven't had uh, perhaps a a, a role model uh, in, in, in a mother, and I don't know what to do now, is there someone who will mentor her? Is there someone who will provide her with the basic things she needs and teach her and coach her along as she goes? Will she feel confident in making that decision? Will she have the financial support she might need if, if, if the father of the child has ditched her, as is so often the case? Uh, will she have what she needs to, to, to make it? If we were talking about that, if we were talking about how we help women in this situation, uh, I would have a great deal more respect for the entire debate. But since we're not doing that, and we think that if we just make something illegal, the whole problem will go away, it won't go away. If a woman cannot make the decisions that she wants to make with regard to her own life, if government thinks it needs to get involved in those decisions and make decisions for which government isn't taking any responsibility, then government is getting involved where it shouldn't get involved. If people who feel very morally compelled to 
to uh, to reduce the number of abortions or even to get rid of abortions as a, the uh, uh, get rid of abortion as a procedure altogether then those people should spend their time providing supports to young women and making it clear that they'll be with them and behind them and helping them along but if we simply make a procedure illegal what we're doing is adding another burden to young women already burdened enough for whatever reasons, and we're making life more difficult. And we're pretending that without putting any skin in the game, we can solve a problem just by making a legislative decision. We're kidding ourselves. The problems are far more serious than that, and we need to not pretend. Uh, we, we need to not pretend that legislation is a matter of just shouting, you know, I'm for babies or I'm against babies. This is ridiculous, and it doesn't get to the to the to the moral test of the question. I think. And so, as you can tell, I think we should steer clear of this issue. I think it has served as a divisive issue for long enough. We should get serious about supporting young mothers, yes, but we should get this off the table. Kansans have far more important and pressing problems they need to be dealing with now rather than using this issue as a wedge to divide us further. I see. But, you know, if, if you're elected and you're in session and Republicans decide to bring forth, you know, a constitutional amendment, you know, to, to put to, to put on the ballot, um, making you know abortion basically uh, unconstitutional under Kansas's state constitution, would you would you just not vote on it, or would you? I'll oppose it. You oppose it. Okay. I'll oppose it, and I'll oppose it with the with the uh, with the statement that until you get serious about helping young mothers with uh, with their with their pregnancies uh, in supportive ways, uh, you're not being serious about the issue. So I would absolutely oppose it. I see. I'm just curious, you know, like personally for you, I mean, you know, you're involved in the church. Um, how, do, how do you personally kind of, you know, view this whole dynamic? Is, is, is it the same thing as, you know, support the young woman first, you know, before we even talk about the idea of, you know, whether we're against babies or not, that kind of whole thing? I don't view this as an issue. I don't view this as an abstraction. I have personally had a number of women who have come to me and who have, who have, wrestled with themselves in front of me, who've, who've privileged me uh, to listen in on their thoughts and have asked me uh, what I think. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you that in every single instance where we were able to provide support, we were able to welcome a child into the world and set a mother on a path that, that she could live with. And so this isn't about having an issue. This is about doing the work to walk with someone through the difficult decisions in their life and, and, and give them the help they need when they need it. It's providing a family to someone who doesn't have a family, for example. Mm -hmm. That's what churches should do. That's what churches should be about. That's what my church is about, and that's what I'm about. Okay. Okay. Um, so another thing I want to talk about is, moving on to another subject, is uh, Medicaid expansion. Um, where do you fall on that? Uh, I am absolutely in favor of Medicaid expansion. Uh, it simply makes good sense. First of all, we're in a COVID-19 pandemic. That's no secret to anybody. If we would have expanded Medicaid long ago, we would not have left up to 150,000 people in the kind of medically vulnerable situation they are in particularly now. Uh, so, uh, number one, affordable access to health care, uh, making sure that uh, pre-existing conditions uh, are not do not disqualify anyone from access to health care is important. We all pay federal taxes, income taxes. And currently, part of those income taxes go off to the other uh, 35, 6, 7, 8 states that have expanded Medicaid uh, and do not come back to us. 
And what this has done is that this has, um, this has cost our state $9 billion in revenues that could have gone into supporting rural hospital infrastructure, for example, in supporting health care jobs, uh, and, of course, in providing health care for those people who currently don't have affordable access to it. To it. So uh, we, have, we have made poor economic decisions here. We've made poor uh, decisions with regard to, to human health and welfare. Um, you know, we should be having a discussion about why anyone in our country should be denied health care. Why do we think that it's okay to deny some people health care? Uh, it violates the whole principle of insurance. If everyone's in, everyone should have what they need. And, uh, and that, it's, that it doesn't seem to be working that way or that people don't want it to work that way uh, raises some very serious questions. And those are questions that need to be responded to on various levels. But as far as we here in Kansas are concerned, regardless of the imperfections in, uh, in our national health care strategy, we have the opportunity to expand Medicaid and to provide 150,000 Kansans with the affordable health care that they need and get monies to our hospitals and health care workers uh, that they need to continue to serve Kansans, especially in our rural areas. And we should all be in favor of that. There's absolutely no good reason not to expand Medicaid. Well, there are, you know, there are definitely people out there who do oppose expanding Medicaid uh, and, you know, for various reasons. Uh, and you talk about the points of compromise. How, how would you perhaps maybe try to, you know, approach these, um, you know, you know, these people, these politicians, you know, more than often not Republican uh, from, from, from the other party who, who do not support Medicaid expansion? I don't think it's, it's the job of politicians all the time to, to negotiate on fundamental kinds of things. You're asking some very fundamental questions here. It's the voters' responsibility to say, what do you want? Do you want affordable health care for everyone in this state, or do you not want affordable health care? If you want it, uh, then uh, then you're going to have to vote for people who will deliver on it. If you if you you know if the state's divided on this issue and we're stuck with each other in a room in a situation where we can't compromise, and as in the current situation, our hospitals are closing uh, in our rural areas which means economic development in those areas is also dead. And at the same time, we claim that this somehow makes economic sense. Well, then we've got a problem. The voters need to step up to the table and they need to say what it is that they want and they need to elect candidates who are going to go to bat for them. That's what has to happen. And, and it's in the voters' hands. It's not about politicians who aren't able to, to negotiate here. It's about voters who don't know what they want uh, and who need to go vote. If they, if they care about these issues, they need to go vote. That's the important thing. Now, there are a lot of things you can compromise about, but whether you have 150,000 people who have no access to health care and who have pre-existing conditions and so forth and so on, how do you compromise about that? Uh, I think, I think it's, I think it's a, not just a question of, of legality, it's also a question of morality, uh, whether you allow people to go without care. I mean, whether you systematically even prevent them from getting care. Uh, so... A lot of areas, obviously all areas in, in politics, uh, you'd have to look at the details to see where compromises are possible. Uh, but, uh, but, but that, that very fact alone, I think, should, 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 not be, should not be a matter of compromise at all. That's a fundamental human right that we're talking about here, and we need to respect it. I see. You know, following along the lines of just you know, this healthcare discussion, obviously you know, 2020 has been, I guess, you know, it's, it's been messed up for a lot of people, right? And because of this coronavirus pandemic, um, it's 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 hurt a lot of Kansans. Um, you know, you know, 
when when you're in office and you know most voters will have be having COVID nineteen in you know in the forefront of their minds, you know, what will you you know try to do in terms of you know whether that be passing legislation or you know supporting someone else's bill in terms of you know helping candidates you know deal with this pandemic that it's hard to see when it will end. That that, that should be our first priority. For me, it's it's not even. It's not even abstract. I had an uncle who just about five weeks ago died in a nursing home in Washington, D.C. of COVID-19. He once worked here for the Kansas Department of Health and Environment. Uh, And uh, so this is painfully real uh, to me personally, and I know others who have contracted the illness as well. Uh, But government needs to do everything at this particular moment in order to contain uh, the spread of COVID as much as possible. Uh, I mean, we've been, we've been watching that uh, over the last months, haven't we? Um, and of course, because we live in such a polarized era, of course, we need to exploit uh, this issue too and, uh, and figure out, uh, we need to exploit this issue too, apparently, uh, and, uh, and, and uh, instead of uniting and, and fighting this common enemy together. So that's really what we need to do. I agree with you. Uh, that's priority number one. We need to figure out how we can keep people safe. We know that the simplest way to keep people safe is wear your, wear your mask, wash your hands, and repeat. Space, you know, keep apart as much as possible. I mean, that's really the, the key thing uh, that every citizen can do. And, and uh, uh, beyond that, obviously, uh, we need to figure out how businesses can continue to function. Uh, hopefully in ways that, uh, that, that don't involve shutting them down completely. Uh, we have lots of small businesses that have found all kinds of creative ways to deal uh, with COVID, and some of them very successfully. Uh, I have restaurants in my neighborhood in central Topeka who do marvelous curbside delivery and who have continued to operate uh, under these conditions. It is possible, uh, but one has to be flexible. And uh, that's, uh, that's part of the reality of, of, of being a business, is that being creative and being flexible and learning how to adapt is really key. And, uh, and, and if people can do that safely and they can, get, they can get their customers to believe that everything that they're doing is as safe as it can possibly be made, nothing's perfect, but as safe as possible, uh, then they're going to survive and they're going to do all right. But some businesses have been, have been hurt that haven't been able to do that. I mean, bars are still closed. Right. Uh, this is really difficult. And I'm, I'm, I, th- I think the state needs to figure out how to support those businesses and their employees. I think the state needs to be negotiating with the federal government about how to do that, uh, because uh, because we all realize this is not these are not normal circumstances. And so we should be working together to figure out uh, how to do that. And I think I think that's currently happening. Um, but uh, but this is an ongoing problem, and so it will probably still be here next January. Uh, if I and others are elected, uh, we'll see what role uh, we get to play in uh, the pandemic as it, as the reality is then. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, right now, as, as a citizen watching this, it's pretty discouraging, actually. Um, but you keep wearing your mask, washing your hands, and social distancing. Uh, that's the best that, that we can do. Yeah, you know, mask wearing, you know, law scientists say is very important. You know, um, you know, Governor Laura Kelly obviously believes it's important. And you know, one thing she's kind of been complaining about, at least in recent press conferences, is the fact that you know there haven't been any kind of unified, you know, kind of statewide mask order because you know counties, if if, if they choose so, can opt out. Um, do you think that you know? Counties shouldn't be able to opt out. That they sh- they should have to comply with Governor Kelly's order on 
in the wearing a mask? I think I'd ask the question differently. I think I would say, you know, we have different government jurisdictions. That's a reality, and uh, we have to live with that reality. Uh, so what should be happening is that people are gathered around a table, and we ask what can we do with each other and for each other to make sure that all of our people in our jurisdictions uh, are, are, being, uh, are being helped in every possible way uh, to deal with this pandemic. And that's the conversation that needs to happen. Unfortunately, we're in a campaign season now, so that means that everybody's got to find some way to oppose everybody else, uh, and that isn't helpful. Uh, this 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 pandemic hit us at a, at a rather inopportune moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, but what we really need to do, and I think what people expect uh, uh, their leaders to do, is to uh, to get together and discuss what each person can do in their jurisdictions and how they can all work together in order to to provide for the safety of their citizens. And that's that's what voters should expect. And and hopefully, uh, voters will vote for people who are are willing to do that. So are you saying that you would leave it up to more local control in terms to, to I, I'm saying every jurisdiction has its own responsibility. And I think that there is there's a state responsibility, there's a county responsibility, there's a city responsibility, you know, townships, et cetera, et cetera. These groups need to be sitting at a table. They need to be all looking at the same facts and they need to figure out what needs to happen in their jurisdictions. You know, COVID-19 is not the same in every area. Uh, some, some areas aren't as populous. Others are very populous. So in a, in a pandemic situation, it's what's happening on the ground where you are that really matters. So if you find yourself in an area that, that is undersupplied with, with health care supplies, for example, there are areas that may be oversupplied. You, know, you have to figure out how to get the resources where they're actually needed. So we're not facing a similar circumstances everywhere. And so there are criteria already in place for determining what should be done under which level of uh, infection, for example, and how best to respond to that. And the important thing is that everyone is sitting around the table looking at the same facts, agreeing on the same facts, uh, uh, are, are unified in what the goals should be and also the available means, and they should be sharing those with each other to make sure that those areas uh, Uh, where people are most endangered are getting the help that they need and that everyone else is doing what they need to be doing given the level of infection they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of another, you know, matter debate with this kind of COVID situation here in Kansas is, is that, you know, uh, state Republicans have, you know, have tried very, very hard to try to ensure that businesses would not be closed down anymore. Um, so I'm wondering, like, say, you know, this pandemic gets worse and it could very easily get, get worse. Um, And scientists are recommending that, okay, the only way we can stop this from getting even more worth is we, you know, we close down businesses and we just lock down. Would you listen to the scientists then? I don't know that that's a scenario that's necessarily wholly realistic. Uh, we've, we've, we've seen that scenario already played out in a number of places around the world. And we're seeing that in some of those places where it was very successful initially, then relaxed uh, uh, those things and it came roaring back. So, uh, so I, I think we're in a situation where we have to be flexible, uh, where there isn't just one solution fits. Science can't say one solution is the only possible one. Science can say this is how the virus reacts in different environments. That science can say. And science can say if we want to minimize the effects, then these are the things we need to do. We need to wash our hands, wear masks, socially distance, okay? Uh, you know, science can say that. Science can't say whether it's a good idea for this, that, or the other business to close because science can't say how those businesses might adapt to deal with it. You see what I'm saying? 
So I think, I think the important thing is that science tells us what we need to know about this virus and that we, based on what we're hearing, find responses. You know, the economy is just as important as not contracting or contracting this virus. Uh, tell somebody who, who doesn't want to, you know, who's staying at home in order not to contract a virus uh, that's lost their job uh, that they should feel good right now. I think they're going to have trouble, you know, to, to, to be safe from a pandemic in order to die of, uh, of, of no job, no place to live or whatever, you know, is quite a, quite a choice, especially when there aren't a lot of supports out there for these folks. Mm-hmm. So we need to be flexible here. We have to be flexible here. But, of course, we need to understand what the facts are. Again, this is something that we, we seem to find difficult at this moment in our history. We can't even agree on the, on the facts. Uh, scientists have important things to tell us, and we need to be listening. They've been right on everything so far. And that's not a surprise. They've been dealing with coronaviruses for decades now. This, is, this, is, this may be a new kind of virus, but it isn't, uh, it isn't a completely new virus. And so they do know some things about it. And there are people working on this now. Uh, hopefully some kind, of a, some kind of a vaccine is on the horizon. Uh, but in the meantime, we need to be flexible, but we need to, we need to, we need to ensure the safety of people to the greatest extent possible. Mm-hmm. How would you grade the, you know, the current state, the current response from the state, uh, you know, in handling this pandemic and what do you think can be improved upon? You know, I'm running in Senate District 18. Senate District 18 was represented since 2005 by now Governor Laura Kelly. Governor Laura Kelly, not only um, Senator Laura Kelly demonstrated herself extremely as, as an extremely able uh, politician and state servant and uh, public servant. Uh, and, uh, and so the 18th district should be proud uh, that, they, that they invested in, uh, in a leader like Laura Kelly, who is the right person at the right place uh, at the right time. Uh, she has she has offered absolutely superb leadership. I've obviously lived in her district uh, most of my life, uh, and she's one of the inspirations uh, for my running. Uh, it's her solid leadership and her care for people in this state that has really, really uh, meant a great deal. And I think she's she's ideal uh, in in this situation right now. And I think it's it's hard for people who aren't in her office right now to accept the fact that. Her reports and her airtime and everything that she's getting, especially during a campaign season, uh, is hard to take. So you've got to try to disrupt her in every possible way in order to get some airtime, apparently. Uh, but again, uh, politics shouldn't be, shouldn't be influencing what we all get together to do and must necessarily do, and that is to ensure the safety of every citizen in the state. Everyone should be working together to do that. If there are legitimate reasons to disagree about a certain strategy in doing that, fine. But politics ought to be swept aside in this and people need to be put first. I see. But do you think there's anything specific that maybe the state could could do better? I think there's always something that we can do better. Uh, that's a very general question, and uh, I'd have to be part of what's going on now in ways that I'm not to know what potentially could be done better. Um, first of all, you know, we've been dealing with a virus that we didn't quite understand at the beginning, and the knowledge about this virus has been evolving ever since. Uh, could the response have been better? 
if the knowledge of the virus had been better. I mean, it's, this, is a, this is an evolving uh, situation. What we can do better is actually sit down with each other and agree on what we need to do rather than uh, making our polarization uh, an opportunity for this virus to spread. Mm-hmm. You know, another effect of this pandemic uh, has been kind of its um, effects on the state budget. You know, the state, you know, has, you know, obviously not gained as much, you know, revenue from whether it be taxes or whatever, uh, you know, because of the COVID-19's effect. Uh, and that's going to be a big discussion, you know, next session, you know, on how how to kind of get the state back on its financial footing. Um, I'm curious, you know, what do you think could be done on this? You know, should, you know, should some taxes be raised? Should, you know, um, you know, would medical marijuana help? You know, what do you think could be done? Well, uh, first of all, uh, I think, um, uh, you know, you don't rush to, uh, to it, first of all, you have to decide what the problem is. And uh, our problem has been that the previous administration uh, bankrupted the state. And, uh, and uh, that was a taxation problem. Uh, some people were getting a great deal of, a lot of tax breaks, and, uh, and we were plundering our Kansas highway funds in order to support those tax breaks. And, uh, and that, that left us terribly in the hole. So the legislature remedied that situation. We were, we were beginning to come back again uh, to a place uh, that was more healthy when the pandemic hit. So the question is, how do you respond to this? Um, first of all, I think the states should be working with the federal government. Uh, it's not a situation where we have a lot to cut in the Kansas budget. We don't. Uh, we should be borrowing money against future revenues uh, as we navigate this crisis. Uh, that makes sense uh, because hopefully that'll only be a, a short-term fix while we while we work on uh, continuing to bring back the economy uh, from COVID-19. So, so you know we've been crippled by this economy now and and by the response to the virus uh, uh, to a great extent. Uh, but also by other factors that uh, that we that we need to address, um, raising or or not raising taxes in and of itself uh, isn't a solution to anything. Uh, the question with taxes is always why are we raising taxes? What for? What are our goals? Are we meeting those goals? Uh, if not, uh, I mean, how are we measuring whether we're meeting those goals or not? So, uh, and the other question, of course, is uh, is taxation equitable? Is it fair? Uh, is everyone uh, is everyone uh, being being taxed in ways relative to their incomes uh, that are truly meaningful? In the previous administration, we were giving uh, huge tax breaks to people who made lots of money, and we were putting a, a greater burden uh, on people who who uh, had had trouble putting food on the table. We have the highest um, we have the highest uh, sales tax uh, on food, for example, in the nation. That's unacceptable. That should change. We have. Property taxes in Kansas that are that are way higher uh, than than even states where we would expect uh, that uh, that the rate would be higher than ours. Uh, so we have to think about all the various taxation tools when we talk about taxation. It's not just about raising or lowering. It's also about which taxes should be raised or lower, and what and what should the mix be. So. You know, I think we're I think we're due for a for a general discussion on taxation, where where our entire system is uh, is scrutinized a little more closely uh, as part of figuring out how we bring this uh, economy back. I see. 
So regarding the tax system, I guess the, the sense I'm getting from, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that you would you would you would want to make the tax system more equitable in terms of you know making sure the burden is equal for everybody, whether you're a higher earner or a lower earner. Am I That's correct? right. Okay. That's right. I, th- I think I think that's important, and I think it's it's important for a number of reasons. I think uh, you know we should recognize that everybody participates in 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 what government does, and and I think we have to have a discussion about what government should do here, and 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 why we raise the taxes we do in the way that we do, and through the channels that we do, and. Uh, that's that's a discussion I think we should have, and I think it should be one that can be very educational for the public as well as for as well as for politicians to really understand what's involved in that, and to be a little clearer about about what what the expectations are, so that people feel. I mean, will anyone ever feel good about paying taxes? I mean, let's be honest. Nobody wants yeah. to pay taxes, right? So, uh, but 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 talking about raising or lowering taxes uh, independently of what the goals are that those taxes are supposed to accomplish is is, is very artificial. And I think uh, one needs to really have a discussion about what needs to happen, how we need to kind of kind of modulate the tools that we have to fit where we want to go. Mm-hmm. You know, another big discussion in twenty twenty. Um, that's also caused a lot of kind of, you know, anger, pain, divisiveness. Um, and I, I'm sure it's also on a lot of Americans' minds in general, in general is kind of, you know, the conversation surrounding, you know, the death of George Floyd and, you know, others. Um, and I, I think also you, I, I'm curious as to, to what you have to say about this, because, you know, I, I mean, from what I, I've looked at, I, you were actually like a chap. We were or are a chaplain at the... I'm the lead chaplain for the Topeka Police Department, yeah. and I've been there serving as a chaplain for over 20 years. Yeah, so I, you know, I think you might have some unique insight on this, but, you know, I guess, what are your thoughts on the kind of all, you know, all, you know, all, all these protests and all these conversations, you know, surrounding, you know, George Floyd's death? Well, uh it's not just about George Floyd's death, right? Yeah. George Floyd has become kind of a symbol uh, in the in the current debate. Uh, there are many others whose lives have been lost under questionable circumstances. Um, I think, you know, first of all, let me explain what a chaplain does. Most people don't know what a chaplain is. Uh, a chaplain is someone from the faith community who volunteers uh, to to go with police into the community when someone has died an unattended death and to offer family support in that situation. So if your grandfather dies in bed at home, for example, and you wake up and you find him, what do I do? I mean, that's a stressful situation. It's emotionally stressful. Chaplains provide emotional first aid. Law enforcement has to be there because if someone dies an unattended death, in other words, a medically unattended death, uh, then uh, then one has to kind of make sure that uh, that person didn't die because someone killed that person for example okay i mean it's just you know so so there's a there's a there's a there's a method that one follows and the chaplains are there really to to uh, allow officers to do what they have to do while we are there for 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 people in the community who are struggling with with the loss of a loved one in a critical situation that's the one thing we do uh, we we try to offer emotional first aid uh, the other thing we do is we make death notifications so you know, if, if someone's daughter has been killed in a car accident, for example, it's our job to accompany a, a police officer to the home of her parents, for example, and, uh, and to, to tell them what has happened. Uh, it's a difficult job, uh, but it is, uh, it is a job that, uh, that the police department uh, feels is important here in Topeka. And, uh, and I agree that it's important, and we have a, we have a really, really good 
diverse chaplaincy corps of uh, about 10 people now uh, who are who are, are going out and uh, are on duty 24-7 providing this service. Now, chaplaincy is, is part of what I would call uh, community relations of, of our law enforcement uh, department here at Topeka. I mean, obviously, community relations is far greater than, than just the chaplaincy program. Um, in all of what's been going on, I think there are, there are two sides, uh, and they don't have to be opposed to each other. The one side is that in, in, in certain cities and places, uh, the relationships between police and certain uh, parts of the community, certain segments of the community, certain neighborhoods, is, is, seems to be an adverse one, right? Uh, and uh, and uh, I feel like here in Topeka, we've really made a huge effort at the police department uh, to, to really engage in community policing. Uh, I've been part of of a group uh, that uh, that was formed under a Department of Justice grant, a federal Department of Justice grant, that the Topeka Police Chief uh, Bill Cochran um, uh, adopted, uh, in which all kinds of people from the community were brought together to discuss, you know, how can we make policing more responsive? You know, how can we how can we establish better relationships between the police and the community? Uh, how can we make sure that people who have complaints can file those complaints without you know having to go to the police department to do that in front of an officer, for example? You know, how can we do all these kinds? Of, I mean, just all kind. There's a whole whole long list of things, and we've been working on those things for two years now, and and a lot of things have happened there, and so. You know, for police departments to really be closely involved with the different communities within a city is really, really important. And to build trust is really, really important. Was that trust there in Minneapolis? It's clearly not there. Is that trust there uh, in, in, in Kenosha, Wisconsin? Uh, it's clearly not there. Does that mean that, that the Topeka Police Department uh, needs to be held accountable for, for those jurisdictions in Wisconsin and uh, Minnesota? Not necessarily. So again, you have a situation in which different departments in different states and, you know, the, the, the county level and the city level is different, the state level is different, and, and, and they all operate differently. So we're not talking about one thing. It's not the police. Uh, it's, it's a lot of different jurisdictions and a lot of different policies and a lot of different department politics. Uh, again, what's really important here is not to say, oh, uh, I'm in favor of the police no matter what they do, or, oh, I'm in favor of everybody who's pro- uh, 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 opposing the police right now because the uh, police are, are, are all guilty of brutality and so forth. That's, that's not what should be happening here. That is, again, I think a very uh, poor discussion. We have to recognize that there are some serious problems uh, and have been for a long time. But the way to deal with those is to bring community leaders together around the table and to look at policies and to discuss uh, how, uh, how these problems can be solved in a constructive way, because you cannot solve them when people are shouting at each other. Now, we have lost five officers since I've been a chaplain here at the police department, and three of them were shot and killed. So as you can imagine, uh, the sort of general, general, um, general critique of police officers is very hard to take uh, for 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 emotionally for police officers. You know they're putting their lives on the line every single day, and uh, and and then all of a sudden you know all they hear is you know police are brutal. Period. You know sort of a blanket statement of that kind. First of all, as a blanket statement, it's just not true. Uh, and second of all, one has to have a much more nuanced discussion about what's what's going on here. And uh, that's the one thing. The other thing is I think that the police are often expected to solve problems the rest of us don't want to solve. 
that's a problem too. You know, this whole defunding police uh, debate that's going on now uh, is, in a certain sense, a ridiculous one. We closed state hospitals. We closed uh, all kinds of facilities uh, for people suffering uh, from mental health issues. And who, who gets to pick that up? The police. Are the police the best people to deal with that? Arguably, social workers would, would, would be the people to, to deal with that. Unless, of course, someone is violent and, and, and that person needs some support. Then, of course, uh, some kind of law enforcement present, presence would probably be helpful. Um, but that's a different discussion. You know, that's not a polemical discussion about defunding police. That's, that's a discussion about, you know, what do we need to solve here so that police are not put unnecessarily at risk uh, so that police uh, in certain situations don't make decisions that might end in, in ways that we don't want them to end. Again, we cannot, you know, expect a law enforcement to, 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 to be held accountable for what the rest of us don't want to take seriously. So, so what I'm saying here is, again, if people don't sit down and discuss what needs to happen uh, uh, in, in, in areas where there are tensions, so that everyone understands where the other side is coming from and work together toward the same goal, then we're going to continue to have these kinds of polarizing discussions that at the end of the day aren't going to solve anything. More communication is, in my opinion, always the answer. And I'm very proud that the Topeka Police Department has been pursuing this for a long, long time with great intentionality and that these kinds of discussions have been happening here. I see. You know, you know the phrase define the police, it's... Um Obviously, that phrase itself is also kind of nuanced because, you know, there are some people who say when they say defund the police, they mean completely get rid of the police. But there's also others who, when they say defund the police, they kind of refer to what you're talking about in terms of, you know, removing, you know, money from, you know, in some cases, an overloaded police budget and then putting it towards, you know, social workers or, or other kind of services that could deal with those kind of situations. I'm curious, do you, do you agree with that latter approach? Uh, well, it, it doesn't make that much sense to me because, first of all, you'd have to tell me what percentage of the police budget actually deals with that. And if you thought that uh, lowering the budget by that amount and putting it towards, say, social workers in the field uh, would actually solve the problem, uh, if, if that were the case, I suppose one could have that discussion. But I don't think that's true. And I don't think – I think the problem's far bigger than just a, a little piece of the police budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and so so I think that whole I, I think that whole debate doesn't hold much uh, hold much hold much uh, isn't isn't very substantial as far as I'm I'm concerned I think it's more pol- polemical. Uh, again, here's the question: What do people want? Do people want uh, uh, people who are struggling with mental illness to receive the care they need? Do they want that? If they want that, then they've got to figure out how to pay for it. Uh, this is not something that any department is just going to solve. This is something the voters need to decide on. It's something that, that they need to force politicians to take care of if they want it done. Uh, so, so again, this belongs to, to – this goes back to your taxation question. You know, what do we want to accomplish? What's it going to cost? And who needs to accomplish it? Mm-hmm. Those, are very, those are very fundamental kinds of questions. Uh, and, I, and I don't think they're discussed well when you say, oh, we should defund the police or we should do this or we should do that. That's – that's all not serious. It, it may make for may, may make for good press, but it doesn't make for good policy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is just a question we've been asking um, almost every candidate, which is: um, Do you do you believe Black Lives Matter? I absolutely do. Uh, I think Black Lives Matter too, and I think that's exactly what that means. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think. Uh, 
you know, other slogans that are marched into the field as some kind of protest um, are, 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 for example, all lives matter. That's sweeping a problem under the rug and failing to understand the pain uh, that some people are, are truly feeling. And I think that's, I think that's wrong. Um, and, uh, and I think here, uh, I mean, how would you feel if your house were on fire and the fire department came and poured water on all the other houses while yours burned down? You're saying my house matters too, or should be just as important, okay? And I think that's that's the conversation we need to be having uh, in 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 the society. Mm-hmm. We have 400 year history of clear inequities that we have again and again not wanted to deal with, and uh, the only way that we can deal with this is to educate ourselves to talk with each other and to formulate goals. A friend of mine said very nicely the other day, you know, we have to have a vision of the future that is greater than our memories of the past. Uh, We have to formulate a vision of what a a peaceful, uh, prosperous society would look like and how we can all get there together. Mm -hmm. That's what we need to do. And that's what we need to work on. Do you think there's anything that can be done on the state level uh, in terms of kind of you know, just, just kind of a criminal justice conversation that people are having, you know, whether that be maybe something to do with maybe, you know, the state prisons or, you know, do you think anything can be done on the state level? Well, there are a lot of things that you can do when it comes to juvenile justice reform and criminal justice reform. And, and this is a, a, a topic which has been is being seriously discussed all across the country. Um, but again, uh, the discussion looks differently depending on what state you're in or what jurisdiction you're in. Um, I think we have far too many people incarcerated for ridiculous things uh, that uh, that are a waste of taxpayer dollars, frankly. Uh, people who are a threat to themselves or to others uh, are, are, are in a completely different category and uh, by far represent a very small, a much smaller po- uh, part of the population than many who are in prison uh, because you know, their warrants have piled up. That uh, almost turns our prisons into debtor's prisons, and it's, it's something that, that we shouldn't be supporting. Uh, and uh, so I think, I think criminal justice reform is very, very important, and I think that uh, we have to think very seriously always about what's the goal of incarceration. Is it to help someone to get a better, to get a better start in life after they've been incarcerated? In other words, are we preparing them for something afterwards? Or is it just a place where we're penalizing them and making them feel bad for a long time and then expecting that once they're released, suddenly they're going to be fine and everything's going to be okay? We're kidding ourselves. Uh, The United States has comparably one of the highest incarceration states of any Western industrialized nation. And uh, this is an incredible waste of human potential. And we should be thinking about how to, how to uh, help people uh, get to a better place and, and to be productive citizens, happy citizens. Uh, that's, that's what we should be doing generally. Okay. Okay. Um, so I guess, you know, if you're elected, you know, what will be the top three priorities that you would want to focus on for the next session? Well, I want to, I mean, I've been running on this all along. First of all, I want to make sure that we can recover the economy uh, safely uh, under the conditions of this pandemic. I think that needs to be first and foremost on everyone's mind. 
part of that for me is finally expanding Medicaid. Let's get this done. Uh, we're doing ourselves no favors. We're just digging the hole deeper in which we already economically find ourselves. The third thing is we need to make sure that our schools have everything they need uh, to teach our children uh, in ways that are safe for our children and for school faculty and for school employees, uh, that we're doing everything we can to make sure uh, that, we are, that we are securing our state's future. And uh, so I'm, I'm, I've always been uh, uh, an ardent supporter of public education and that schools get what they need to do the job we expect of them and that they get what they need to be able to do that job safely. That's absolutely crucial. So those are the, those are the three things that, that I think uh, have the highest priority at the moment. Okay. Okay. Um, so, you know, talk about compromise and, you know, as a Democrat, you definitely need it because, you know, you very likely will be in the majority GOP legislator next session um, and for many sessions to come probably. Um, are there any particular, you know, issues or stances that you think, you know, you, you could get, you know, you could find some compromise and could be negotiated? I think you can find compromise on, frankly, most issues as long as there's a willingness to agree on the goal. You know, it's one thing to say, I think that, that, that everyone should have health insurance. It's another thing to say, yes, but the way to get there is this way as opposed to that way. You know, if you can at least agree on the goal, then you can find ways to, to, to compromise on how to get there. And politics is the art of the compromise. <laughs> it really is the art of the possible, you know, via compromise. You, mm. you have to be willing uh, to compromise. You absolutely have to be willing to compromise. But you, but you have to also agree on goals. But I'll say this again, voters need to tell the people they elect what it is that they want. And they need to elect people regardless uh, uh, of which party uh, who are going to accomplish what they want accomplished. And, you know, voters are saying over and over again right now, we care about this COVID pandemic, we care about Medicaid expansion, and we care about our public schools. They're saying that very loud and clear and poll after poll after poll. And so that's telling us that that's what they want. Uh, so hopefully the election will favor candidates who, who are willing to go to bat for those things. Okay. Okay. Um, you know, you, so you, you have an opponent running for office as well. Oh, what? Um, you have an opponent running for office as well. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why are you a better fit than her? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think first of all, I've been around a lot longer. Uh, you probably know the word Senate comes from Senex, which is the Latin word for elder. Uh, I think that, uh, that it's important to have a bit of experience uh, under your belt uh, before you run for office. I think a person should, should, uh, should have a day job, should, should know where they stand and, and be fairly independent uh, of the political process uh, before engaging in it. No one uh, should start out their career as a politician. Uh, that, that just makes you beholden uh, to party leadership, and uh, I think that's fundamentally unhealthy. Uh, I'm 56 years old. Uh, that doesn't mean that someone who's 27 can't do just as good a job or better a job. Uh, but again, I don't know her personally enough to say uh, whether that is uh, 
whether that's the case or not, I have I have met her once, and uh, in fact, I was part of the 2020 Leadership Greater Topeka class, and uh, she did uh, strength assessments for our class and 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 uh, interpreted uh, uh, our leadership styles to us, uh, uh, and uh, and did a very nice job of doing that, and so. Uh, uh, that is that is what she seems to do professionally, and that's that's my only knowledge of her actually, uh, except that she's running uh, on the other side, uh, and I'm running on this side. But fundamentally, right now, what I think is is important uh, for Republicans in this state uh, to understand is that if the Republican Party is going to recover from the kind of right wing tack that it has taken, it's going to need to vote for Democrats, because unless more Democrats are elected we won't be forced to the center. We won't be forced to come together and actually discuss issues rather than just grinding axes from the extremes. So so right now, I think in a two-party system, it's very important to balance the parties because that's when the conversation happens. And so it's up to voters whether they want uh, to be angry and whether they want polarization or whether they want conversation. So balancing Balancing the parties is the best thing that can happen for the Republican Party, and it's the best thing that can happen for the Democratic Party, and more importantly, it's the best thing that can happen to Kansas and for Kansans. Awesome. So um, wrap, wrapping this up, you know, like you said, it's it's very divisive time. So, you know, this question I want to ask, you know, what, what's one thing you, you like about the Republican Party? <laughs> Let's see. I like Abraham Lincoln. I'm a great fan of Abraham Lincoln. Uh, 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 Theodore Roosevelt is a favorite of mine. Uh, and so was Dwight David Eisenhower. Uh, and uh, uh, it's very hard for me right now uh, to feel very positively about the Republican Party after what we've been through uh, in the previous uh, administration. Uh, but that's that's because of a certain direction the party has taken. But again, uh, I am hopeful that the voters will rescue the Republican Party and vote for more Democrats so that the Republicans can find the middle again in their own party and return to a party that actually has ideas, that has ideas and that has a vision of the future that is compelling. And when, when we challenge each other to come up with compelling visions, that's when things get interesting. And I'm hoping the voters are going to try to create an atmosphere in which both parties are forced to come up with a compelling vision uh, for an idea about a future we'll all want to get to together. All right. Well, that should be it. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate it, Tobias. Thank I appreciate you. your time. Thank you, Titus. Thank you. listening to this episode. If you're looking for more, you can support local journalism by subscribing to cgonline.com, reading our articles, and following the latest news on our social media platforms. You can also find more podcasts like this one in the Apple Podcasts app, on Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.